0: Tonight we begin a a five-week series uh, for the rest of this month, uh, a series based on the Lord's Prayer. It's entitled uh, Pray Like Jesus. And uh, so tonight what we're going to do is uh, we're just going to begin by uh, opening into the Lord's Prayer. And what we're going to do each week is just kind of break it down uh, stanza by stanza, kind of unpack what Jesus is really trying to say here. Now, if you've ever read the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew or in Luke, uh, you realize that there are a lot of different translations. Uh, There are a lot of different variations even. There have been people who have uh, gone outside of translations, and wrote their own variations of the Lord's Prayer. Um, there was a, a elementary school boy who was uh, praying the Lord's Prayer one night, and uh, as he was reciting it, he began with, our father who does art in heaven. <laughs> Harold is his name. And uh, I thought, uh, I thought this kid needs help. This, uh, he needs to, he needs to be here tonight. but. There are some that have created their own variations of the Lord's Prayer, but as far as translations go, what we have done, as you know, uh, we read the Lord's Prayer every Sunday morning, and so what we've done is we have kind of taken three different translations of the Bible. We've taken uh, the NASB, the New King James Version, and the ESV, and we have kind of married them all together. Um, we're not doing a disservice to the scripture. What we're doing is we have tried to figure out a way to get the most accurate meaning of the text to communicate what Jesus' heart was behind the prayer. And so uh, even the scripture that we'll read on Sunday morning, you're probably not going to find that exact translation in in or that exact wording in any one translation. But again, it's because we have kind of taken and we've married a couple of the different translations together. And so tonight we're going to open with the Lord's prayer, but we are going to uh, begin with this first stanza, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of a backdrop of where we're at. We're in Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to begin this. Now in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, he has already begun his public ministry. He's probably around the age of 30 or 31. And he goes up on a hillside and he he releases this sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And basically he is on this hillside. I've been there in Israel. And uh, it's an incredible setting that Jesus chose that is filled with grass. And it's almost like um, this bowl. So the acoustics could go and he could speak to the thousands and thousands of people that were there. But as Jesus is uh, giving this Sermon on the Mount, it takes us all the way from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew 6, what Jesus does is he begins to talk to them about prayer. He talks to them about how accessible the Father is. He talks to them about what answered prayer looks like. He talks to them about the motives of their prayer life. And he gives an example here, starting in verse 9. Uh, you can read if you have your notes or it'll be on the screen. Uh, the scripture reads this Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now. There have been a lot of books and teachings revolving around the Lord's Prayer. Some people have viewed the Lord's Prayer um, kind of as a template of prayer, if you will, a type of model of prayer. As a matter of fact, this is the way that I have viewed the prayer uh, for most of my life. I'm not saying it's the only way to view the prayer, but uh, it's definitely the, the mode that I have chosen. And on the fifth week uh, here at the end of the series, what I'm going to do for you, I've, I've used the Lord's Prayer as a template for my prayer life for years. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go just take that entire teaching time and I'm just going to go with you stanza by stanza and show you how I break down uh, my prayer life with the Lord's Prayer as a template. But there are some people that only view the Lord's Prayer as the model prayer. In other words, they're saying that it's not a model or a template, it's the only way that you should pray, okay? And so they do not say that you should say, our Father in heaven, we worship you, we bless you. They're not saying that. They're saying you go word by word, phrase by phrase, line by line, that's how it's to be done. There are others that say that the, it's not really a, a template, it's not really the model for prayer, but it's more about the tone of what Jesus was trying to communicate. He was trying to communicate that this is our Father, and we, we approach him with humility, we, we approach him with delight, and this is kind of the tone that's set. Now, I'm going to disagree primarily with that certain type of approach because I think there's some error there. Um, But beyond getting in that, we are going to treat this uh, mainly as a template as we go through this series. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you tonight. I thank you for the word of the Lord. I thank you it's alive and it's powerful and your spirit is moving when we open it. I pray tonight, Lord, that you will uh, speak to our hearts. Uh, I'm reminded that as a pastor, we are just basically reminding people of things they already know. But I know that even as we do that, Lord, your spirit is quickening us and you are encouraging and you're strengthening us. And so I want to pray for that strength to be our own tonight and that you would be glorified in all this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. I think I may have uh, mentioned this before, but when I was growing up, my dad Worked in the oil fields. So he, um, oftentimes, he, he would either work in the oil fields or sometimes he would have to go offshore on, on oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we lived in uh, the panhandle of Florida, a little town called Milton, Florida. And so that was like our hometown most of my life. I was, I was, um, being raised there but with his job with the oil company we had to move a few times we lived in lafayette louisiana once and um one particular time i was probably four or five when we lived for about a year and a half in a little town called laurel mississippi has anybody ever heard of laurel mississippi all right it is the smallest town you could ever imagine there was not a lot going on but i was only four or five so it didn't matter too much but I remember uh, being, being in Laurel and, and I was so young, it's one of, the, one of the earliest memories that I have. I remember one time my dad had to go offshore and he was going to be gone for a week, week and a half, something like that. And while he was offshore from time to time, they would, they would make them wear these gas masks. And when they would require them to wear the masks, they would make all the men on the ship shave. They would have to be clean-shaven so that the gas mask would fit nicely around their face. Now, my dad had always had a beard. from, From my earliest memories, my dad always had a beard. And I remember this particular time when we were living in Laurel that he had gone away, and when he had left, he had had a beard. And when he had come back, I remember my mom saying, dad's home. And so we all ran to the door. But when I ran to the door, another man opened the door because it did not look anything like my dad. He had shaved his face. And I'm not sure if you've ever been around a man who has a beard for a number of years and then they shave your face. It is a frightening, shocking. It's like taking a cat and shaving it. It it just looks bizarre. And... uh, So as a four or five year old kid, I see this man and there's a resemblance of my father, but it's not my dad. And so I run, I ran to the back of the house. I hid, I wouldn't come out. I was crying. My mom was trying to console me. I said, no, I I want my dad back. This is not my dad. All these kind of things. It was really, it was honestly traumatic. It's one of the earliest memories that has stuck with me my entire life. Now, the reality is this, is that he wasn't any different, He was still my dad. The difference was, is that I had never seen him quite that way before. Does that make sense? As Jesus begins to pray the Lord's Prayer, he is doing something that is absolutely revolutionary. It's something that really hadn't been done up to that point. And one of the most revolutionary parts of the entire prayer is the very opening sentence where he says, our father who art in heaven and the reality is is that it was revolutionary because up to that point most rabbis at least in in written form most rabbis had never addressed god as father now i'm sure that there there were some that that did in prayer different things but this was a monumental moment because jesus is before thousands and thousands of people And before religious leaders and Pharisees, people that could take his life, he is addressing God Almighty as his Father in heaven, one of the very first to ever do it. Now, the word Father is used in the Old Testament. We have in Scripture, you can go through your Old Testament, it's used a dozen or more times in the Old Testament. But the difference is that in Old Testament writings, When the word father is used, it is not a personal individual relationship that's being spoken of. It's a father on a national level for the people, for the race, for the land of Israel. It's kind of like a corporate father over this people, not so much an individual father over people. And so as we uh, transition into the New Testament era, Jesus, in, in the gospel of John alone, Jesus uses the personal individual phrase, Father, more than 100 times in John's gospel alone. In the entire Old Testament, it's only used a dozen times or so. In the book of John, he uses it more than 100 times. In the other, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the synoptic gospels, he uses it about 65 different times. And so it's a revolutionary move that he's making when he begins to pray to God as if God are his individual father. Now, reality is this. Jesus could have used a plethora of different names to address God as, right? He could have used Adonai. He could have used El Shaddai or Yahweh or Elohim or Jehovah Rapha or Jehovah Shalom. He could have used all of these different names, but for some reason, Jesus decided out of all these names that I know, God Almighty has, I'm going to use the phrase Father. And I believe there's a reason to it. But before we get to the Father thing, this is what we're gonna do, we're gonna back up and we're gonna, tonight, we're gonna kind of go almost word by word through this opening stanza here. And the first thing I wanna address tonight is the word R. not A-R-E, but O-R, or O-U-R, our Father, right? So the question comes up as Jesus is praying our Father, The question comes up, is God really our father, right? We've heard it said in American culture. You've heard people say, well, well, we're all the children of God, right? You've heard people that are not even religious or people that are not a part of the Christian religion. They'll use the phrase, they'll say, well, you know, really, we're all the children of God. The question is, are we really all the children of God? I would say, I would say yes and no. I would say in a very general sense when you're talking about God as creator then I would say yes in in that sense I guess we all are God's children right so in Genesis as God created the heavens and the earth in 127 scripture says that God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him male and female he created them so in a very Uh, you know, Geppetto Pinocchio type way, creator creation type way, in general, yes, every person, saint and heathen alike, in, in, in a general sense, we are all the children of God, right? But in a very personal, individual sense, that may be true, but it may not be true. It is not true for those who are not, trusting in Christ as Savior. Okay, let me back up one second here. As our original parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, it it broke us. It broke our relationship with God. It broke um, our our purity with God. It, It broke us, and sin began to course through our spiritual veins right for all of human history every person has been affected we are all born into sin we are all born you know bent towards sinfulness and rebellion against god as a matter of fact every person is is so bent like this at from birth paul would say this he would say by nature in other words by our very human nature by the fact that we are called human beings we are by default considered the children of wrath. You realize Paul didn't say, we're all God's children, baby. Those who want to come in, those who don't, that's okay, we're all God's children. No, he said this, he said, no, no, by by nature, by default, you're children of wrath. And this is applicable to all mankind is what he says. And so in a personal individual sense, No, we're not all God's children. Those who are outside of the body of Christ, those who have not trusted in Christ are not technically in a very personal sense the children of God. The good news is this, is that the opportunity exists for anybody to become a child of God. The opportunity exists for us to be able to look and to say, my father, not just our father, but my father in heaven, the opportunity exists. Um, uh, Paul would write to the Galatians, this is what he says. He says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So you understand what he's saying? He's saying, through Christ Jesus, you can be a child of God. But the caveat is that you have to have faith in Christ Jesus. And so we understand that for some people in a very individual, personal sense, some people are the children of God by choice. Other people are not by choice. Jesus even said this in in John 8, at the latter part of John 8, Jesus is having a discussion with some of the religious leaders. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, if God were your father you would believe in me. You notice what he said? He said, if God were your father, which which indirectly means this, that some people, God is their father and some people, God is not their father. But again, the choice remains for all of us, whether or not he can be our father is by our choice. So following the the R is the next word that I really wanna focus most of our attention on tonight is the word father, our father you've heard this before, A.W. Tozer said this, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The reality is this, if we're going to associate God as a father figure, that carries enormous ramifications based on how we view our fathers on earth. It can either mean a really good ramification or it can mean something that is absolutely detrimental because the reality is this, is that many of us were not raised with good and godly fathers. Many people, many Christians were raised with fathers who were not good to them. there was a um, few years ago. There was um, there's there's a pastor. His name's Louis Giglio. He he leads an incredible uh, next generation ministry, and um, he talked about six different categories of fathers. Now, obviously you understand there's more than 6 categories of fathers, but he was basically saying that that pretty much for the most part all of us can associate our father in one of these 6 categories. And so, he talked about the first category being an absent father. You may have been raised in a home where there was divorce and your father wasn't really a part of the picture or maybe your father was just disinterested in your life for, for whatever reason. And the trouble with being raised in a home like that is oftentimes we can project that onto the image of our father in heaven right? So this is where a lot of agnostic people, this is where their approach comes from that, yes, I may believe that there's a God, but if there is a God, he's uninterested. He's distant. When I pray, he doesn't answer. When I pray, he doesn't hear. He's off just letting everything in my life kind of spin out of control. This is oftentimes a result or a mindset of someone who has had an absent father in their life, okay? The trouble with that is that we know that God is not an absent father. Uh, Scripture, time and time again, there there are a thousand examples that we could give that prove to us that God is very present in our time of need, not just in our time of need, but he is present at all times and in every situation. And so some people suffer from uh, a a broken mentality and, and project this image of an absent father on God. Number two, some people project this image of an abusive father on God. If you were raised in a home where there was emotional abuse or verbal abuse or physical abuse, God forbid, that very well could have an effect on how you view God as our Father. Okay? And so when we, when we think of being raised in an atmosphere where our father was abusive on any of those levels, it's often that we can feel like God is going to equally be abusive, right? And so what do you do to someone who's being abusive? You keep your distance, right? You may have to live with them. You may have to grow up with them because they feed you and they put shelter and clothes on you, but you definitely keep your distance because you don't want to be abused by them any further. And oftentimes what happens is we develop this mentality where there's a fear of the Lord and we begin to put distance between him and us. A third type of father that so many people, so many people, including myself, struggle with is a performance-based father. This is the type of dad that you knew loved you growing up, but you also knew that you had to, on some level, you felt like you had to earn their love you had to earn their blessing. In other words, they were always um, you know, at, at the sporting events or looking at report cards or whatever, but there was always this fear that I'm never gonna measure up, right? If, if I don't make a certain grade, I'm not gonna get blessed. If I don't you know, perform well in certain activities, then my dad's affection won't be as strong as if it would be if I did perform well right? It's a performance-based mentality. The struggle is that oftentimes, see, this is one that I most closely relate with. I've struggled my entire adult life since I became a Christian. I've struggled my entire adult life with the mentality that I have to perform at a certain level to please the Lord, It's always been a struggle for me to believe that God loves Corey just because he's Corey. It's always been a struggle for me to believe that. And the struggle would be that sometimes I would get to a place and I would feel like I've been set free from that. And that man, I just, I am walking in grace and I'm swimming in all this and loving it so much. But the reality is, is that there there would be so many times I feel that freedom, but then over the course of time I feel myself slipping back into that mentality, right? I remember one time just being so frustrated, being so frustrated because what I was feeling was not aligning with scripture. And the reality is that sometimes we just have to ignore what we feel and we have to place our faith in what scripture says. But I remember just going to my wife one time as, an, as a married man, just, just as an adult with kids in ministry for a long time. And I remember going to her in tears and, and saying, I just feel like this is a thorn in my flesh. Like Paul had a thorn in his flesh, for, he asked God to remove it and God denied him the request. I have asked God to remove this and he hasn't removed it. Maybe this is just a thorn in the flesh. And then I know I've told you this before or made this recommendation. But a few years, it's probably been 10 or 12 years ago, I came across a book by Timothy Keller, by Timothy Keller, Cole. And uh, Timothy Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal God. And the entire book, unbeknownst to me, was about dismantling the performance-driven aspect that so many of us have in our relationship with God. And I'm gonna tell you what, the Spirit of God used that to set me free on so many levels. Sure, there are times I still wrestle with stuff like that, but my point is is that God is wanting to set us free from these broken mindsets and to view him for who he really is. Listen, the Bible says this. Listen to what uh, Romans 5 says. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies against God, he sent his son for us. What about that speaks to me about anything that I have performed? I was still a sinner. I I was a rebel against God. My efforts amounted to nothing. And even in my nothingness, God came for me because it's never been about how well I perform. It's never been about how good I am or how bad I am. It's always and forever been about what Christ accomplished in his good work on the cross on my behalf. Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. You can't, listen to me. I'm a red blooded American. And I love to earn what I get. I believe in hard work. I believe that a person who doesn't work outside of you know very legitimate issues, that a person who doesn't work is a person who may not get to eat. I am all about work and making things happen. So when I read a scripture that says, you can't take credit for this, it's very frustrating for me. I'm taking it personal, Lord. I'm like, really? Do we want, do we want to go? Do, we want, do you want me to try to see if I can earn this? And the Lord echoes. He echoes it time and time again. And he says, salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done. So none of us can boast about it. And so there are all of these different types of mentalities that we have against, uh, that, that we may project onto the Lord. Number four is a passive father. This is a father that may be at home and may be present physically, but is not present emotionally. They're not engaged. And this could be for a number of reasons, either, you know, something that, you know, they just don't, you know, have the desire to be engaged, or it could be that, you know, mom or whomever has kind of pushed them to the side so that they could, you know, whatever, But the point is, is that a person who is a passive father puts off this idea of God that God is just kind of not really concerned or engaged with what's going on in your day-to-day life, right? But we know that's not true about the father because Jesus speaks in Luke 12 and he says, even the very hairs on your head are all numbered says, don't be afraid, you are more valuable to God than a whole flock of spirits. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying, listen to me, God's not just generally involved in the happenings of the earth. And he's not just generally involved with the happenings of Israel. And he's not just generally involved with the happenings of Christian life or generally involved with the Smith family. He is generally involved with Justin Smith. So much so that he knows the very number of hairs on his head. It's a very personal, a very practical way that God is expressing. I am not just passively uninvolved. I am very much aware of what's going on and I'm concerned for you. Number five is probably one of the most concerning and frustrating that I've ever seen uh, as a youth pastor for almost 20 years. Uh, It was rare that I saw this, but I did see this from time to time, which is the antagonistic father. This is the father that, it's almost like they were against their children. Like no matter what they, their children did, they did not want their children to win. And if they ever felt like their children were doing well, that they were sure to put them back in their place. It was almost like, uh, you know, the father that's in competition with their children. It's a, it's a very bizarre, very bizarre experience and I'm sure very confusing for many children. The reality is this, is that there are people in our, in our day who believe that God is against us. There are even people that are the children of God that believe that if they don't act just right, that God is going to be against them. And I'm reminded, I'm reminded of what Paul said in Romans 8. When he said this, he said, but if God is for us, who can be against us? Right now, now clearly there's this line, there's this line where the judgment of God, or excuse me, the mercy of God ends and the judgment of God begins. Clearly there's a line. We're not talking about, we're talking about the children of God. God is not against his children. Even when discipline comes, it is not for their detriment, it's for their betterment. And so we've got to make sure that we have this mentality um, that God is for us. Number seven, and finally, is this. It's the most ideal father that we can imagine on the earth that I would call the empowering father. This is the father that is kind and compassionate. He possesses empathy for his children, Um, he is an encourager for his children. He gets involved in their lives, he loves them. the other day, ironically, I was, I was talking to my oldest, uh, most of you know, uh, I have a one-year-old and a 20-year-old and a whole bunch in between. And um, I was talking to my 20-year-old the other day, and um, she was asking something, I can't remember the exact conversation. And uh, she said, I love you. I said, well, I love you too, because you're my favorite. And she said, she said, what? I said, you've always been my favorite, just like Easton's my favorite. And Ella's my favorite, and Emery's my favorite, and Aubrey's my favorite. You're, you're my favorite, Autumn. So so it, it's one of those things where where you have to understand that that when God views us, it's not like he looks at Pastor Glenn and he loves Pastor Glenn more because he's got a beautiful, buttery voice, okay, and sings really good. It's it's not like this, this un... You know this unequal love that he chooses to pour out on some because maybe they pray more or because they perform better. It's it's nothing like that. The, you've heard it said the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? The love is overwhelming. The how great the love that God has poured out on those that He has called His children, the sons and daughters of God. And so um, there is this empowering moment. And and let me just say this for for those fathers that are the empowering earthly fathers. It's not that these fathers are perfect, right? But it is usually that these fathers are godly men. And as a result of being godly men who are invested in the lives of their children, the image of God inside of them that is broken and and distorted a little bit, it's a little more clear as a father a reflection of the heavenly father. It's a little more clear than those who are not within the body of Christ. And so they represent who God is in a really, really powerful way. Now, God is full of all those attributes, right? All those positive things, but the father is also not a pushover in the same way that an empowering earthly father isn't just going to let you run all over him, right? There's discipline that needs to be had at certain times, three different times in the New Testament. Jesus one time and I think Paul twice uses the phrase abba father. Now if you were in Israel today, if you're in Jerusalem and you know you see little kids running around, they'd be running around saying abba. They're they're saying or, you know they're they're calling out for their their papa. That's that's literally what it means. It means daddy. Whereas father is more of a an authoritative tone. Does that make sense? And so Time and time again, this phrase is used, Abba Father, indicating that yes, God is our daddy, but God is also our disciplinarian, right? He will he will do what needs to be done, but he will lick our wounds after he's done it so that we can fulfill the destiny that God has called us to, right? He's not this grandfather, um, or great-grandfather that just kind of lets us, you know, do and run and do as we please. God is still guiding us and guarding us so that we can fulfill the purposes of God in our lives. It is so vitally important that we understand this relational aspect as we pray. If we get everything else right in prayer, but we miss this relational aspect, Connection, we've missed it all. We've just missed it all, and I, I'm I'm trying not to be overdramatic or to overemphasize that. But the reality is, it's true. We have missed it because then God is no longer our Father. Then either we are His slave and He is our Master, or vice versa. If we try to make it out to be like that, so we have to maintain this posture that we are sons and daughters, and He is Father and King, right? J.I. Packer wrote this in his book, Knowing God. This is what he said. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his entire outlook on life, It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. And for us as his sons and daughters, how disheartening for him must it be when we come before him, when he he has opened the doors wide and he said, as my sons and daughters, just come. Come just come, just come, but then we approach him as if he is a militant figure, as if we approach him as if he is this police officer, as we approach him as if he is there to harm us instead of to help us. How disheartening that must be to the heart of our father. And so we've got to remember that though our depiction or the, the, what we take on from our earthly father's distort our view of our eternal father, we've got to remember, even though that can be a barrier, it can also be like a bridgeway in our relationship with God. But we've got to do the hard work of dissecting that and figuring it out and saying, "Okay, Lord, I was raised in this. even if you were raised with an empowering father, it's still good to go before the Lord and say, although I was raised with an empowering father, I know he is not the the perfection of my heavenly father. I know I know he's still broken. Father, show me who you are. Even through his life, show me who you are as my father." And we hope that we believe that God will absolutely do that. And so our Father who art in heaven, number three. The phrase "art who art in heaven is incredibly potent in this. If we just claim that God is a Father who is not in heaven, that makes him just a Father like we are fathers. And as I've said a thousand times before, God, though he relates with us on human terms, God is very other than what we are. He is, he is not us. He is not like us. We are made in his image, but even that, again, there's a distortion there. He is very different than what we are being the divine being. And so with that, when we say our Father in heaven, what we're doing is we are elevating his status, When we say our father, we are are approaching him in the throne of grace. We are are coming into his arms. But when we reveal that he is our father who's in heaven, what we're reminding ourselves is that, yes, he is our father, but he's also our king, right? He possesses all power. He possesses all knowledge. He possesses these incredible attributes that make him who he is. And so as we begin to, look through the the different attributes of God, of Him being all-knowing and Him being present at all times, even in our worst and best moments in life, we're reminded of the tender, loving compassion of our God. The Bible says this in, in Psalm 139, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride, the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the forest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. To know that our father is ever present is incredibly important for us. To understand that God is with us in the darkest moments and in the moments of Jubilee is very important for us that we not feel abandoned when we do not sense his presence in the way that we would hope to sense his presence. My daughter uh, Ella is five now. She just started kindergarten and I'm so sad, but she loves school. She is an incredible little lady. Um, Over the past year, she has had tremendous trouble sleeping at night. She has nightmares almost with almost without, I would say five out of seven nights a week, she wakes up in the middle of the night crying, upset, nightmares. And what I've learned is that sometimes when she's having the nightmares, I'll go and try to wake her. I just want to jolt her out of it, you know, and so, so I'll shake her a little bit. Hey, baby, dad, you know, I'm right here, you know. What I've found is that I always can't wake her up. As a matter of fact, mo- the majority of the time I can't wake her up. It's like she's so deep in her sleep and so deep in this moment that I can't even shake her awake. And so what I've started doing is I've tried to wake her up, and then if I realize after a couple of seconds I can't wake her up, what I do is I just I wrap my arms around her and I pull her as close as I can to myself. I say, baby, daddy's got you. Daddy's got you. I'm here. You know, And I just told her, she, I don't think she's hearing what I'm saying. But the reality is is that what I'm trying to do is to calm her just by my very presence. Even though she's unaware that I'm holding her. I am, I'm believing I'm settling something inside of her, even though she doesn't realize it. And, and I believe that to be true because of this. After a minute or maybe two minutes of holding her, everything begins to subside. Even if she is still asleep, it begins to subside. And I just want to remind us that, that even in the moments where we don't sense the presence of God on us. The moments where it feels like he's nowhere to be found, it feels like we're trapped in nightmares, it feels like he is a thousand miles away, that does our feelings never have an impact on the reality that God is ever present with us. As his sons and daughters, Jesus, as he's going away even physically with his disciples, what does he say? He says, fear not, I will not abandon you. I told you I would, and I will come for you. And the reality is that we have got to remember that even in the best and worst times, even when we don't realize it, the loving hands of the Father wrapped around us, he's with us. He's a, it's a promise. It's not something said to make us feel good. It's written, it's a, it's a promise. It's a truth of the word of God, and we must embrace that as his children. Number three is this, and then we're gonna wrap it up. Number three is to remember that he is sovereign over all things. Job, in all of his hurt, in all of his tragic moments, he would say this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's reminding us that the Father in heaven is not only a perfect father, but his ways are perfect. That all that he does is perfect. Even when there's a lack of understanding, even when there's frustration, there is another level that God operates at where he says, listen to me, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My my ways and my thoughts are so far and beyond. They're otherworldly than what you can imagine. But as a father, he trusts us to trust him in this moment. You see, the sovereignty of God is not about control, right? The sovereignty of God is not about what he can control or in many people's minds manipulate. The sovereignty of God is about his care and concern for humanity. His overwhelming strength that he puts on display is primarily to come for his people that he loves and he cares for. Listen, when Jesus use this phrase, this would have been shocking, not only for the Jewish people, but for the Greeks as well. Because the Greeks understood, you see, when, when the Greeks talked about their father, their pateras, their the Greek understanding of fatherhood was a father that had absolute power and sovereignty over his family. They could do nothing outside of his words. They could do nothing outside of his blessing. If he did not want them to eat that day, they couldn't say a word about it. He had absolute dominion and absolute control over the moment. So for Jesus to step on the scene and to begin to talk about a father that's sovereign, that possesses absolute control, but in his control, he's concerned would have been an absolute paradigm shift for so many people in that audience because a compassionate father would have been a very foreign concept to so many people in that land for that day. Now, the last thing that we're gonna mention really quickly in the last four minutes is this. The last little tag onto the opening stanza, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. A few years ago in in uh, uh, graduate studies, we had to study the religions of the world. Pastor Glenn and I had that class together and um it was it was not just a survey of these different religions, but it was a deep dive into. Um, these religions. And I remember in, in different conversations, we would we would be talking and and almost simultaneously, uh, we were having a conversation talking about how, how after we left from reading one of the chapters of the book, we just felt like the sense of oppression just over us. I mean, it was just a very dark time of study and, and learning about all these religions. And in one of those courses, we were studying about Hinduism. And One of the the statements that were made in the study of Hinduism is that when people approach Krishna, they often approach him as, on on many different layers, right? So they approach him as Lord, as child, as master, as friend, as lover, Um, just so many different angles they approach their deity as, and As I thought about that, I thought, man, that that just seems so bizarre on so many levels. But then I started thinking about modern Christianity in some circles and how many Christians across Western culture treat God in the very same way. We don't treat him as hallowed to be reverenced, to be honored, but sometimes we treat the Lord far too casually as our friend. Now, God is a friend of sinners, but there is a difference in how Jesus treats us as friends and how we treat him as Lord. There is um, this um, temptation maybe to treat God as um, servant, there is this temptation to treat God as a wishmaker. There is all these different temptations when the stark reality is that God is none of those, He is the sovereign Lord who's to be honored and respected. You've heard people talk, right? Even in, even in joking, you know, people say things like, I'm going to talk to the big guy upstairs, you know, or, or something like that. Um, we, you know, I, I've, I've sat with people, uh, especially younger people being a youth pastor for so many years and, you know, we'll, we'll sit at a meal and, and they'll say, oh, I want to pray. And they'll start praying. And they'll be like, what up, God. You know, they'll begin to address God like that, and I cringe on the inside, but I have grace because I understand they're just growing in their faith. But my point is, is simply this, is that God is, is not a being that should be approached haphazardly. Now, now he says, he says, listen, come boldly before the throne of grace, but understand it's still a throne. Right, Understand there, there is still a reverence, there's still a respect, there's still a humility that we must possess. And I'm afraid as, as casual in Western culture that, that we have become with, with the Christian religion, the Christian faith, that far too many times God is treated as less than he ought to be treated. And I'm gonna tell you, the, the, the Jews had no problem treating God with reverence. You've heard it said even modern day Jews will not as they as they write you can go to uh, uh, to synagogues right now on, on their websites and you can read what they believe and never will they write out the word G O D God. It will be G space or hyphen God G-D because they have such a reverence for the name of God that they're not even willing to write it. I think for us, and when I say us, I mean the church in general, the church of the West. I think for us, what it really comes down to in our approach to the Lord, is it comes down to humility and it comes down to maturity. You know, I'm I'm closing, we're gonna pray, but I have five kids in my home and Sometimes my kids will be in various parts of the house and I will sometimes call out for one of my kids, right? And being kids, what do they do? They, they call back. Emory, yes! And what do I say? Come downstairs and talk to me, right? Easton, yes, sir! Boy, come downstairs, talk to me, right? But you know what I've never done as an adult? Anytime I'm in the same house on vacation or visiting for Christmas with my mom or my dad, and I'm across the house or across the living room or whatever, and they say, hey, Corey, I never go, yeah! What do you need? I never do that. Why do my children feel like they can do that to me But as an adult, I would never do that to my parents. I would never do that to my grandparents. I would never approach them like that. The difference is, is simply that. It's humility and maturity. I have an understanding that for my parents, I need to honor them and I need to walk humbly before them. And I'm mature enough to understand that every adult that I speak to needs my undivided attention and they need my interaction not to be hollered at from across the room. My children are young. They don't quite get that. I'm training them. I'm teaching them the way to interact, but they're still young. They're they're not quite mature yet in the Lord. And I think sometimes in Western culture that that, that, that so many walk in a level of immaturity that we just casually approach God however we feel like approaching God that day as opposed to walking in humility and maturity and understanding, no, I I don't just talk to him the way that I talk to another human being. I'm talking about the omnipotent God of the universe, God Almighty, who loves me and cares for me, but still sits on a throne because he's mighty. Amen. Father, will you help us, all of us, start with me, Lord. Continue in me to see you as Father when I pray to walk with love and honor and respect for you, but to enjoy the pleasure of sonship. Help my sisters to enjoy the pleasure of daughtership with you, Lord. As we walk through these next few weeks, I really pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll open our eyes and just see you in a new way. Help us to really get to the bottom of what Jesus was trying to communicate when he prayed this Lord's Prayer. I thank you for your people who are so faithful. I bless them in the name of the Lord.